Isn't that good? Go ahead. It's all right. Today we want to talk to you about comebacks. And we know that the greatest comeback of, of all was Jesus rising from the dead. But there are some other comebacks that we want to cover today, and I believe they're going to be apropos to your life. And I want to start out with a word of prayer, and we're just going to believe God for a great time in His presence today. Heavenly Father, we ask you now in this moment to season our hearts with the moving of your Spirit. Let us decrease up here that you might increase. Let no one see us or hear us. Let them see and hear you. Speak to us today. Energize us. Challenge us. Reprove us. Correct us. Make us better. Inspire us and encourage us from your word. And we give you thanks and praise for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of the great comebacks in history. One is a man named Bernie Marcus. How many of you know who Bernie Marcus is? Raise your hand. Like three people. I'll tell you who Bernie Marcus is. He was a guy that worked at a mom and pop hardware store. And I don't know what Bernie did, but mom and pop got mad at him and fired him. How many of y'all, well, I won't ask that. How many of y'all have ever been fired from a job? <laughs> don't ask that. But maybe some of you here know what that feels like to be fired or, or let go from downsizing. Well, Bernie was a victim of that. So Bernie decided, rather than just sit here and succumb to my weakness and live in this setback, I'm going to make a comeback. So he went and got a friend of his and opened up a little hardware store in Atlanta called the Home Depot. And now the Home Depot is a multi-billion dollar corporation with offices and stores all over the world. Comebacks. How about Wilma Rudolph? Many of you know that name. She was a young black girl many years ago. She was born with a crippling disease. She could hardly walk. The doctors told her, you're never going to really amount to anything in sports. You're going to be doing good to be able to walk. She had braces on for much of her childhood. When she got older, she just decided... I'm not happy with this. I'm just not going to live this way. And she took her braces off and started trying to run. And it was very difficult and very painful for her. But she kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. And as you know, eventually, Wilma Rudolph competed in the Olympics and won medals for the United States of America. When, when said, you're never going to be able to do that. Talk about a comeback. Wilma Rudolph made a comeback. General Douglas MacArthur, one of the great generals in American history, was turned down not once, but twice by West Point. Somebody missed the boat on that one. Albert Einstein was expelled from school for being, quote, too stupid to learn anything. Albert Einstein. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. Michael Jordan. Number 23. The man. You're not good enough to play high school ball. Wow. Wow. Listen to this, after five years, now think about that length of time, five years of continual rejection by publishing companies, a woman finally got a publishing contract. Her name was Agatha Christie. Since then, her book sales have exceeded $2 billion. Only Shakespeare has sold more. The Christopher Little Literary Agency receives 12 publishing rejections in a row for their new client until an eight-year-old daughter of a Bloomsbury editor demands to finish reading the book she had been given to start. The editor agrees to publish but advises the writer to get a day job since, quote, she has little chance of ever becoming a successful children's book writer, end quote. 
But the Harry Potter books proved him wrong. And J.K. Rowling's wealth is exceeded in England only by the wealth of the queen herself. The last tally I heard, she's worth about $700 million. How many of you could use a raise like that? I'm telling you, yeah, that's a comeback. How many even know who Louis L'Amour is? One of the great Western authors in American history. Louis L'Amour, the greatest Western author of our time and best-selling author ever for Bantam Books, was rejected over, you ready for this? 200 times in a row. Think about that. You're an author. You've got a novel you want to sell, and you keep sending this to publishing companies. How many are there? You get 200 rejection letters. But he didn't give up. He kept on going, and finally he landed a publishing company, but it took 200 times. He landed a contract, but it took 200 times of being rejected to do it. Thomas Edison, whose teacher said would never amount to anything, conducted over 2,000 experiments on the electric light bulb before he finally found a way to make it work. Comebacks, resiliency, not giving up, staying on it. These are the things and the principles and the inter intertwining dynamics of success and of greatness. And world history and American history is replete with examples of people who after failure, after failure, after failure, after failure found a way to make a comeback. Now, not only is American history full of stories like that, so is the Bible. And I want to talk to us today about four comebacks in the Word of God that, if you'll get this, will transform your life. The first one you can find in the book of Job. You can turn there if you want. The very first chapter of the book of Job. And the next time you have a hard day, the next time you go to Atlanta and traffic is as bad as it can be, especially since the collapse of the Interstate 85 bridge, the next time you have a rough start to a week or a day, I want you to think about what we're about to read. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, not even time to start grieving. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep, the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, and this one was different, your sons and daughters, after having the news that Job had already received, can you imagine what he felt when this last servant started out with, I got bad news, your sons and your daughters, my, my, my. Your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are all dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and... What would you do? Without looking at what Job did and just thinking about you, how, how would we respond to this kind of news? I mean, one after another, after another, after another, these messengers come. 
with bad news. Nobody wants to get this. The message packet for Job. Any takers? You just think you've had a bad day. You just think you've had a rough week. I'll be honest with you, sometimes when I, when I think about things that are difficult in my life, I actually do think about what Job went through. And I hate to say this to us, because when I'm going through a tough time, I don't want people to say this to me. It irritates me. I know it shouldn't, but it does. Well, it could be worse. I think like, yeah, you could be dead, you know, but it could be worse. I could pop you in your eye, you know. I think about stuff like that. But the truth is, it could be worse, couldn't it? I mean, whatever we go through in life, you read Job's story, it makes it feel like it's not such a big deal. I think some of these little snowflakes ought to read Job's story. Wouldn't be so sensitive and so offended and need their safe space. We feel afraid. We feel unsafe. Grow up. I got a word for the snowflakes in America. Grow up! You want this packet? Nobody does. Nobody wants the letter, the email, the text message for Job. Because it is a tough day. So the kicker is, and I say this all the time, one of my 333 undeniable truths of life, it's not what happens to us, it is how we respond. So how did Job respond? Let's read it. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground and signed a lawyer's agreement to sue. No, wait, it doesn't say that. I misread that. Then he fell to the ground and complained and grumbled and screamed at God. You know, I've often wondered this. When bad things in life happen, why do people always say, why did God allow this? I've never heard one person say, why did the devil do this? Everybody wants to blame God. Let me tell you why bad things happen to good people. It's not because God's playing head games with us. It's because we live in a fallen world. We live where sin has, has egress into our world and ingress into our world. We live in a world that is condemned by sin, by rebellion against God. And the Bible says that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. It's not God who's responsible for the bad things in life that happen. Why don't we put the responsibility for the bad things in life that happen square where they belong on the shoulders of the one who brought them with him when he rebelled, Satan himself. Instead of blaming God, why don't we praise God and blame the devil? That sounds like a good plan to me. It says, at this Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. I'm not, I'm not uh, asking you to shave your head or tear your clothes. But he fell to the ground in worship. After hearing news like this, after getting this envelope, Job falls to the ground in what? In worship. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, and this is why the last chapter of Job reads like it does. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. What an amazing man. Gets the worst news anybody could. Bad news on top of bad news on top of bad news. Lost everything he had. He falls down and he worships God. What can we learn from this? 
I want to share two things we can learn from Job. Number one, when bad things happen, don't blame God. Job did not charge God with wrongdoing, neither should we. We need to stop looking for scapegoats in our lives and stop looking for the finger. The, the old show in the 60s, Laugh-In, they had the Fickle Finger of Fate Award. We need to get away from the fickle finger of fate. We want to blamestorm somebody when bad things happen. Most of the time, it's our own decisions that bring bad things into our lives. Or it's the devil who's attacking us. But I can guarantee you, the Bible says this. This is how you know it's not God. You ready for me to prove to you from Scripture that God didn't do anything bad to you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God has already proven his motive toward us by giving his son to die on the cross. Isn't that incredible? So the next, thing, next time bad things happen to you, the next time you go through a tough spot in your life, don't look at God and say, God, do you love me? Do you care at all what I'm going through? He can look down and say, I just refer you to Calvary. I refer you to the cross. God loves you today. I'll even go so far as to say no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, right now, this moment, God is madly in love with you. And he has a plan for your life. And it's better than the one we cooked up ourselves. The second thing I want to share with you about Job's story is that God is a God who restores. You go read the last chapter of the book of Job, and you find out that not only did God restore all the sheep, all the cattle, all the donkeys, all the oxen, all the camels. He, rest, he restored them double what Job had before. Job had seven sons and three daughters before they were killed by the wind that crashed the house. God gave him seven more sons and three more daughters. And the Bible says that these daughters were the most beautiful women in the land. And he was able to leave them an inheritance because God had made him twice as healthy or twice as wealthy as he was before. God is a God who restores i got a word for you today. You may think you're in a place where it's pretty much hopeless. You may think that a comeback is almost impossible for you. But I serve a God and you serve a God who makes the impossible possible. God is able to take almost nothing and make the universe out of it with the power of his word. God is able to take a little bit when we give it to him and multiply it. God is a God of restoration. He's a God of comebacks. He's a God of hope and a future. Jeremiah says the God we serve has given us hope and a future. And God has that for you. Don't despair that the place you're, you're in right now is too hard for God. I promise he can reach it. I promise it doesn't intimidate him. I promise he's seen things worse than what you're involved in. And God is able to bring to bear in your life the comeback that your imagination cannot even conceive if you'll just trust him and humble yourself before him. God is a God of comebacks. He's a God of restoration. The second person I want to talk about in scripture today is one that you know well, King David. Now, we all know King David was the greatest king of Israel, but King David had a weakness. King David, king David had a wandering eye. One day, King David was up on the roof of his palace. He was overlooking Jerusalem. And off in the distance, King David saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. Using our sanctified imagination, King David, King David mounted his trusty steed. 
And he rode over to the house. And he said, Yon woman, thou art so beautiful. What is thy name? Bathsheba, because I love taking so many baths. <laughs> Lo, I have spotted thee in the moonlight, glistening upon thy flesh, and I must have you. You foul beast, you. Get away from me. You'll never have me. <laughs> I'm coming. I'm coming after you. Well, we know that's not exactly how the story turned out. I know you're wondering why a red-headed, bearded lady. Well, we know that Bathsheba slept with King David, and King David killed her husband in the process, and I just didn't want to put that on any woman in the church. So I opted for a British-speaking, albino, wig-wearing Jewish person who doesn't exist. <laughs> But the story is true in its essence. King David sees Bathsheba, who, who really was a lot prettier than Jeremy. And now the king could have had any woman he wanted in the kingdom. Basically, the king said, you come here, and she has to come there, or he can kill the whole family. So he, he goes down, and he takes her. You know the story. He, he takes her to his chambers, and he, they, 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 and they engage. And now King David, she comes to him and says, I'm pregnant. So King David realizes, I've got to cover this up. So he brings her husband Uriah home from the battlefront, tries to trick Uriah into sleeping with his wife so, so that the public and will, will think that uh, the baby's his. And he won't do it because he says how wrong. Uh, Uriah has this, this disease called integrity. And he won't sleep with his wife while his fellow countrymen are out in tents in the field fighting battles. So King David can't think of anything else to do, so he writes a letter, different letter. This isn't the Job letter, but it... Might as well have been. He writes a letter and sends it with Uriah back to the front. And Uriah probably never knew that this letter contained his death sentence. Because it said, place Uriah at the fiercest fighting in the battle and then have the soldiers withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and killed. And King David did that. And Uriah was not just a common foot soldier. If you go to the, to the end of First Chronicles and First Samuel and read, you will find out that Uriah was one of King David's mighty men, one of his 30 mighty men. Of all the men in the kingdom, of all the men in the army, Uriah was one of King David's 30 mighty men. And he had him killed just as surely as if he had taken the bow himself and shot the arrow. King David had Uriah killed so that he could take his wife from him. And at the end of the story in the Bible, it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, what can we learn from this story? I want to tell you something about failure. When we fail, and that's a word we like to use in church now rather than the word sin, why don't we do a, a little practice session? Why don't, on the count of three, everybody actually say the word sin with me. Ready? One, two, three. Sin. That didn't hurt too bad, did it? We like to call them mistakes or failures or compromise. We don't like to say the word sin anymore. But the truth is, anytime we rebel against God, that's what it is. We're committing a sin. The Bible, listen, listen, our culture has no impact on the Bible. Our culture that we live in in America has no influence on God. He has not changed at all. And he has not watered down his version of what sin is or compromise. 
or failure. It's rebelling, it's disobeying his word, his command. And that's what King David did. But what David did is what we need to learn how to do. When we have failed God, when we have sinned, when we have disobeyed God, when we've rebelled against His Word, call it what you want, compromise, failure, mistake, whatever, but when we have sinned, we need to do two things. Number one, we need to own it. We can never be saved unless first we're willing to admit that we need to be saved. We can never be cleansed from sin unless first we're willing to accept the the fact that there may be sin in our lives. We've we got to be honest with ourselves. There's nothing more profound in our lives than looking in a mirror that reflects accurately. Pastor Donna is just a beautiful woman. And you get close to her, she's still beautiful. And she came in the, the, the bedroom out of the bathroom there several months ago, and she's just like all vexed out. And I'm like, what's wrong? She says, I just look so old. And I said, no, you don't. You look like you're 30. She said, I just feel so old. And I said, what's the deal, you know? So I, was, I, I encouraged her and built her up. A few days later, I walked by this mirror, a little round mirror sitting on the vanity. And I looked down, and I was like, oh, it's like a 10-power mirror. Man, your pores look like moon craters, you know? You got little tiny hairs and little things on your face. You didn't even know you had. I'm going, this is why Pastor Donna thinks she looks old. Man, an infant looks like he's 80 when you look in this thing. Every blemish, every flaw is like bump, bump, bump. And she's vexed out because she, I look so old. Well, quit looking in the, the magnification mirror. On the other hand, how many of you ever been to a mystery house that had the mirrors in it that made you look different than you do? Yeah, I've been to those too. The mirrors, they lie. My waist is not that skinny anymore. I saw a meme on Facebook the other day. I had this beautiful couple out walking the beach. The guy was just slender waist, broad shoulders, tan, muscular cut. The girl had a great figure. And the caption said, this could be us, dot, 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 on the bottom, but we like cake. I'm going, yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I understand that. But what happens, what happens when we own our sins and failures? Let me, let, me show, let me show you how David responded to this because Nathan the prophet came to David and, sh- and told him a story. He said, Nathan, there was a man who had a whole bunch of sheep, wealthy man, and there was a poor man who had one sheep. But the wealthy man went to the poor man, killed him, and took his sheep. King David was furious. He said, whoever that man is, he's going to be killed today. And David looked at him and said, that man is you. And King David repented and sat down and wrote this, Psalm 51. Here's how David responded to being told by the prophet, you're the man. Here's how King David owned his own failure and set himself up for a comeback. Because we're never going to have a comeback if we're not honest in the setback. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. In other words, I know exactly what I did. And my sin is always before me. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? We know exactly how we've disobeyed God. We know exactly the sin in our lives. Nobody has to prophesy or expose it. When When we're living any part of our lives that doesn't line up with the Word of God, 
it's always right there in our conscience. We know it. David knew it. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I want you to notice he recognized sin as evil. He didn't try to whitewash it. He didn't try to water it down. So that you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole, and bulls will be offered on your altar. God is a God who forgives. When we own our failures, when we own our sins, when we're honest with ourselves and we submit to God and we repent and we're honest with ourselves, then God is a God who forgives. I want to I share this one thought with you about this situation. Even though God forgave David and still allowed him to keep his throne and still allowed Jesus to be born from David's lineage, there was a price to be paid for this rebellion. There is always a cost associated with sin. And I, don't, I, can't, I can't water that down. I can't, I can't pretend that's not real. There's always a price when we rebel against God. What was the price for this? God said two things. Number one, the sword of violence is never going to leave your house. And it never did. As long as David was alive, there was always violence in his kingdom. And the second thing God said is the baby born to you by way of your sin with Bathsheba will die. And the baby died. The good news is God did not banish David forever. Sometimes when we've sinned, we feel like God could never forgive us, especially when we've committed the same sin over and over and over and over, or we've lived such a life of of recklessness and carelessness. We feel like we're too wicked for God to forgive. Let me tell you, God has seen worse than us no matter what we've done. And we can't ever shortchange the love and compassion and forgiveness of God. King David, own it, and God will forgive. The third person I want to talk about is the Apostle Peter. Peter went to the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers came to arrest Jesus. And Peter decided he was going to be a mighty man. And he pulled out his sword. Now, I don't happen to have a, a first century Jewish war sword, but I brought a little knife from my collection. And uh, Peter pulled this knife out. And he said, I'm going to defend my Lord and Savior. Now, I don't think Peter intended to cut the guy's ear off. What warrior is going to say, you mess with me and I'll whack your ear off? You know, not going to inspire a lot of fear in me. I think Peter, Peter tried to cut his head off. I think he went, and the guy ducked like that sideways, and that thing just shaved that ear right off. 
What happened to, to the mighty man who was fearless and stood in front of Jesus and drew his sword and, and tried to take the guy out? What happened to him? Because let me read you what happened. Just a few hours later, this is what happened. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also are with Jesus, she said, but he denied it. Now, where did this guy go? Ah, now he's out in the courtyard saying, oh, no, no, it's not me. No, no, he denied it. You also were with Jesus, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. What happened? After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Maybe he was from southern Israel. Praise Jesus. We're doing a drama one time, and one of the ladies was an angel, and she had a real southern accent, and she, she was reading the book of Revelation, and she was reading the, as an angel. And the, and the seventh angel came and poured out his bowl on the earth. And it's like everybody's going, Okay, that angel is from southern Israel. Here's what happened to Peter. This is... A chicken from, this is my dog's favorite toy. Now, we've, it's, it's, it's so much his favorite toy, he won't play with any other toy except a, a, a bone he chews. Uh, we've got five of these, just in case, because he would be emotionally wrecked if he didn't have chicken. Now, I'll let, I'll let Pastor Donna name all the toys that my dog has. And this one is named, she's very original and creative with these, these toy names. This one is named Chicken. Everybody in the family knows about chicken. Quimby, my dog's name is Quimby. Quimby also has a little red nylon bone that he loves to chew, and that she named Red Bone. <laughs> Quimby also has a white bone that he likes to chew, and that she named... You got it. This is not your ordinary chicken, though. Watch, he's got goggles on. Watch this. He's got a slingshot feature. And he crows. Throw, throw, me that, throw me that chicken. Now, this one, this one is new. I wouldn't bring you one that he's drug around the house because it's filthy. But watch what happens to the Apostle Peter. <laughs> Surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately... A rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus has spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. What can we learn from this story? What can we learn from Peter's one moment, the warrior, William Wallace, the next moment, the rooster's crowing. And Peter's denying he even knows who Jesus is. What can we learn? Number one, don't you ever bow down to what this world wants you to be. You make a choice today. I'm going to be who God called me to be. I don't need the approval of the world. I need the approval of God, and His is the only approval I need. Don't you allow a group of people you work with or a group of people at school or your family or anything to force you into some mold that you don't belong in and none of us belongs in the mold of this world. We belong to be free in Jesus Christ to allow God to make of us whatever He wants to make us. Go ahead.
The second thing we can learn from Peter's story is that God is a God of second chances. The only gospel that records this is John. Some days later, after the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the disciples are gathered up on the shore of, Saint, of this, the Lake uh, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus shows up. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Now, this is the same Peter that had denied Jesus three times. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. What does this tell us? This tells us that God is a God of reconciliation and second chances. For every time Peter denied him, three times, in the courtyard of Antonia's whipping post, Jesus asked him, do you love me? He asked him three times. One time for each of the denials. God is a God of second chances. God gave Peter a chance to come back and make it right. God is a God of second chances in your life. You may think you've gone too far, done too much, but God is a God of second chances. Maybe you got hurt by somebody in church or Christianity. God is a God of second chances. Maybe you feel like you tried something once and it didn't work. God is a God of second chances. I want to close with the story of the greatest comeback in all of human history, and that's the story of Jesus Christ, the greatest comeback in the history of the world. On the first day of the week, Luke's gospel, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they'd prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. This is the greatest comeback in human history. Jesus Christ, beaten half to death on Antonio's whipping post, tortured to the point of near collapse, forced to drag his own cross down the Via Dolorosa, be nailed to it, and erected between two thieves on a crossroad so cosmopolitan they had to put King of the Jews in three different languages over his head. I'm sure the devil thought, you know what? We're done with this guy. We finally have finished with this Jesus, this troublemaking carpenter from Nazareth who's come preaching all this stuff about love. We finally done him in. We finally got him before the Roman court on a charge of sedition, and finally we've killed him. It's over. It's done. We can breathe easier. There's a tomb. The stone's been rolled into place. 
the wax seal and the signet ring of Herod or Pilate put in place. But they didn't count on what was coming Sunday. That all happened on Friday. But Sunday was coming. And while Jesus was in that tomb, he wasn't just lying there trying to resuscitate himself. He was in the bowels of hell doing battle for the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And on the third day, that stone began to quiver. The ground began to shake. That stone rolled away. Light burst forth out of that tomb. And the Son of the living God, who was dead but behold is alive again and lives forevermore, walked out of that tomb, his face glowing like lightning with the keys of death and hell in his hand. And he did it for you and for me and signed and sealed our salvation and our healing forever and ever and ever. Because unless he had been raised from the dead, Jesus' testimony was no more valuable than anybody else's. But he did rise from the dead. And we all know that. That's why we're here today, to celebrate it. But but the the greater, deeper question that nobody ever really talks about on Easter is is the one I'm going to come back to after they sing this song. And I want you to worship with them. And I want you to just enjoy the presence of God and think about the words of what they're going to sing.